0: Let me ask you, if you would please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 4. We'll see how much effect the smoke has had on my voice. Last week we looked at Mark chapter 4, the very beginning, the parable of the soils, and we saw the theme amongst others, but we saw the theme of the importance of hearing and what it is that Jesus means when he says to hear him, not just that sounds would enter into our eardrums, but that his words would begin to shape the way that we live our lives. And so he continues that theme here as he continues to tell parables About the kingdom of God, parables that relate still in this particular section, Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 25, parables that still relate to the concept of proper hearing. So you'll notice as I read in just a moment here, the word hearing repeated yet again. Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 25, please follow along as I read. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be under a basket? Or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Let's pray together. Father, as we approach your word now, we ask that you would grant us understanding. The very type of hearing that our Lord is speaking of in this parable. We understand that it was the need of his disciples and the need of all those who heard his teaching in those days to hear it. And we understand also that it is our responsibility today in just the same way to hear it. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that very thing. That you would remind us that our definition of hearing based on the Bible, is not just that we take in the teaching of your word, but more so that we are taken over by the teaching of your word. We are the potter, we are the clay and you are the potter, Lord, and we understand that as we spin around the potter's wheel, that soft clay is shaped by the instruction of your word. We confess that we know these things, and yet often they grow dull in our hearts. We confess at the very same time that we forget some of the things that you tell us, some of the lessons that you have taught us even long ago. But we also confess that we need you. We're gathered here this morning to hear from you, We understand and we believe what you say, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably remember at some point in your life, though probably at a significantly earlier age than most of us here, playing the game called telephone. You remember that game? The game where you sit in a circle and someone is it and they begin the game by turning to the person next to them and whispering some type of message into their ear. And the game commences with the person next to them then whispering that message to the person next to them and so on and so on and on down the line it goes until finally the message makes its way all the way around the circle and back to the very first person who delivered the message. And if you've played that game, you know that almost every single time that message does not come back as the original message. Somehow, I'm hungry, got changed into, your dog has toe jam. Something completely ridiculous, something that was obviously not the initial message, something that when the initial person who delivered the message hears it, they're, they crack up hysterically because they say, how in the world did you get that from what I said? The game of telephone teaches us an important lesson in life, and I think that's why they make kids play it. The reality is that when it comes to hearing, quality hearing far exceeds quantity hearing. It's not so much about how much you hear, but it's entirely about how well you hear. And how well you hear is not so much determined on how well your eardrums can take in the auditory signals it's sent sent by someone else's mouth, but how well you hear is more so determined by how much you pay attention to what you hear. Did you hear the way it was intended to be said? This is the message that Jesus continues to teach his disciples as we turn now to these other additional parables that he continues to teach us, following the parable of the good soils. He's taught them about the importance of hearing them, or hearing his teachings. And he's taught them that there are going to be four different types of responses, The first response is that the words that he shares, the seed that he sows, the words that you and I share when they correlate with his message are going to either, number one, fall on hard ground, which we said represents the hard heart, a heart that is entirely unreceptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it falls on that hard ground, Satan comes and he snatches it away immediately, And then he taught us that secondly, that seed that is sown, the word that he shares would fall on rocky ground, ground that would initially absorb the seed, initially sprout up growth, but eventually because of the shallowness of the root, die out as soon as things got hard. And then he taught us that there was a, another type of ground, ground that was covered with thorns. That upon growing up in that type of ground, the seed that was sown would be choked out. And he made sure that we understood that what he meant by that is that other things would become more important than the teaching of Jesus. But then he left us with some encouragement. That while there are three types of wrong hearing, wrong listening, there's one type of right hearing. There's one type of right listening. And that was represented by the good soil that receives and accepts and yields fruit. And now as he continues along that very same thing, he has these parables, these additional parables, to begin to teach his disciples. He wants them to understand that what he is saying is of crucial importance to them and that they must hear him well. Because he wants them to understand that it is based upon their hearing of him and the amount of effort with which they put into hearing him that is a direct correlation to the fruit that they will bear. The game of telephone teaches us the reality that it's important how we hear things. The Bible teaches us that very same lesson. The Bible teaches us that in the midst of a culture... That is, Christian by name, there are people who are Christians by new birth. The way that you tell a disciple of Jesus the Bible says over and over and over again is not by what they say about themselves, but by how they respond to the word of God. And so you have Jesus' teaching, John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice Jesus did not say to the people who had believed in him, you believe in me, so you can check that box. Now, let me introduce to you a secondary box that is abiding in my word. If you abide in my word, then you will be a superior disciple as opposed to all those other lesser disciples. No, actually, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, then you will truly be my disciple. Meaning a Christian abides in the word of God and someone who does not abide in the word of God no matter what they say about themselves is not a Christian. John 14:15 If you love me you will keep my commandments. 14:21 Whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 14, 23, and 24, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he will com- and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. John fifteen, seven to 10, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. And then Second John nine. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the son the point that the bible makes continually over and over and over again and the point that jesus is making here is that christians respond to the word of god that's not new information to you is it but it's information that we need to continually hear over and over and over again It's not so much that we need to hear it so that we can make an assessment on someone else's life. Though there are times when that's appropriate. It is that we need to hear it because we must make an assessment on our own lives. Because coming to Jesus is not a one-time past event. Coming to Jesus is an everyday event Every moment event. At the same time, it is helpful for us to have that category in place. To know that if someone says they're a disciple of Jesus, then what Jesus expects of them is to abide in his word. And if they are not abiding in his word, Then, out of love for them and out of concern for their soul, I should, in a spirit of humility, making sure that there's no log in my own eye, I should go to them and say, Hey, friend, can I ask you about the way that you're living? And can I share with you some passages of scripture that would actually contradict what you're doing? Can I ask you, why do you say that you're a Christian, but you don't? Live according to God's word? And they might kick against that, depending upon the condition of their soul. But if they are a genuine believer who just happens to be walking incorrectly at the moment, then at some point that seed will bear fruit in their heart and they will realize, you're right. You're right. I've been wrong. I have to change. And I have to trust that God will give me the power to do that very thing by the life-transforming power of his word. And so we see the reality that Jesus, as he teaches his disciples, he wants them to understand that when it comes to the word of God, we need to listen up. He does this then by teaching them two more parables. And you can see the structure of the passage that's before us with the phrases, and he said to them, beginning in verse 21, and then beginning in verse 24, two different sayings that teach us two different purposes that connect together to form one big idea. So as we then drop into these parables, I wanna outline them for us like this. First of all, in verses 21 to 23, we have a parable about revelation that teaches us what God will do. A parable about revelation that teaches us what God will do, verses 21 to 23. And he said to them, you'll notice that's a continuation of what he has been saying to them, but it's a way of sort of engaging or, or signaling to you that what he's about to say as he continues to say things to them is a different subject that's still related to what he has been teaching. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. And if if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So first, Jesus asked them a question about a lamp an everyday home uh, uh, article that would have been in every single one of their homes. They would have had multiple lamps, one for each room, at, at least one for each room, that they understood that when it was lit was not meant to be put underneath a bowl or underneath your bed. And you can look into all the historical accounts of what type of lamp this was and what type of bowl this was and how high the bed was, etc. But it's pretty obvious, isn't it? When you take a light into a room, if you cover it with something, you defeat the purpose of the light. That's the point of the question he's asking them, right? It's as obvious to you as it would have been to them. But it's a question that stirs their thinking. It's a question that begins to get them to drill down deeper into the meaning of this particular parable. That's the design of the parables. Something that seems obvious on its surface, but when you think more about it, you realize there's a whole lot of depth there. And so he asked them a question about a lamp, and, and the reality is you don't take a lamp into a room in order to hide the lamp. You take a lamp into a room in order to illuminate and to reveal what is in the room. So he asks them a question about a lamp. And then he gives them an explanation about Revelation. In verse 22, he says, you notice the word for at the beginning, that's an explanatory indicator. He's explaining now why he asked the question. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. You notice that Jesus takes the depth of the parable one or maybe even two steps deeper. Nothing's hidden, he says, except to be revealed. Nothing is, uh, nothing is concealed except to come to light. On the surface, you think okay, but then you start thinking about it a little bit more, and you wonder, okay, well, what is it that's been hidden? What is the purpose of it being revealed? What exactly is Jesus talking about? What is it that's been hidden here? I will remind you about the purpose of why he's teaching these parables. Look back up to verse 10 of Mark chapter 4. The context tells us what he's talking about, what it is that has been hidden. As he explained the purpose of the parables to them in chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, it says there, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parables and I'll just remind you that the disciples of Jesus had a curiosity about the teachings of Jesus they didn't get it but they knew they didn't get it they admitted they didn't get it and they asked him to explain it to them and that very curiosity is the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ we don't always get it but we want to and so verse 11 says, and he said to them, to you, that particular group has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So then as we think about verse 22, nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Nothing is, uh, uh, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now we remember what it is that Jesus is talking about that has been hidden. What, what is it that's hidden? It's the secret of the kingdom of God. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? Well, I kind of appreciate how Mark doesn't just flat out give us a definition. Oh, by the way, when Jesus said the secret of the kingdom of God, this is what he was talking about. Why doesn't he do that? Well, because the disciples in those days and the disciples today will have a curiosity that will lead them to dig deeper. But those who don't want to know, those who aren't really disciples, those whose seed fell on one of the three bad soils will say, you know what? I'll just listen to somebody else explain it. I'm not really that interested. That's why I bought a study Bible so someone else can do the work for me. No, there's nothing wrong with a study Bible. There's nothing wrong with Relying on teachers that God has given to the church, but the reality is, Jesus is showing us the need for every disciple, no matter what their level, the need for them to be curious and to dig into the riches of God's word. So, he doesn't tell us exactly what the secret of the kingdom of God is, but do you remember what Jesus came preaching? All the way back in the beginning of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says that Jesus came preaching that the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God was at hand. And therefore, in light of that reality, people who heard the message were to repent of their sins and to believe the gospel. What is the secret of the kingdom of God? The secret of the kingdom of God is that the king has come to bring the kingdom of God. That's the secret. This signals us to the overall meaning of the entire Bible. And not just the overall meaning or the overall scope of the entire Bible, but even more specifically, the overall intention of God in human history. You think about the first couple chapters of the Bible. What did we see? Creation in all its perfection. Unmarred, untainted by sin. And what did God do? He put a man there. And he put him in a garden. And he told him, listen, it's your job to subdue this. It's your job to work this ground. It's your job to take my creation and to keep it. And the man named all the animals and God led the man to discover that there was no partner, no helper fit for him. And so God put him to sleep and from him he took a rib and he made Eve a woman who would be his helper, who would now become the perfect complement to his role in that garden. But then they blew it. Adam sinned. And Romans 5 tells us that even though it was Eve who was first deceived, the responsibility falls on Adam. Adam sinned and plunged the entire human race into sin. No more perfection. Sure, there's beauty. But every bit of it is tainted and marred by sin. But then we fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible. And what do we see there? Perfection. Even better this time than the very beginning. How do we refer to those bookends? Well, you could call it a number of things, but I think one of the most clear things that Jesus calls it is the kingdom of God. The reality is that Jesus had come in this instance to secure a spiritual kingdom, to begin to build what could not yet be seen because it happens inside the hearts of human beings. But when Jesus left, he made the promise to his disciples that he would return. And we have the teaching of the disciples to understand that when he does return, his return will be in power and glory. That he will come riding on a white horse and all the saints will come riding with him. That he will come as a warrior to destroy all of his enemies and he will do so with the sword that comes from his mouth. And his saints will rule and reign with him forever. That is the kingdom of God. And the secret of the kingdom of God that Mark wants us to understand and the secret of the kingdom of God that Jesus wanted those people to understand was that in Jesus, it has come. So in verse 22, when Jesus says, nothing's hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light, what he's saying is that what he meant back in verses 10 to 12, that some would not realize the kingdom of God, that some would reject, some would not be able to see, even though they would see, they wouldn't be able to perceive, even though they would hear, they would not be able to understand. What he wants to do is to remind his disciples, to teach his disciples, that the purpose of God is not to conceal, but actually the purpose of God is to reveal. Jesus quoted from Isaiah chapter six in verse 12. And in that context, it wasn't that God was saying that he didn't want people to be saved per se. But the reality is what was happening was that the people had continually heard the word of God. And their response was continual rejection. They spurned the word of God over and over And over again, until one point, God sends the prophet Isaiah and says, keep on prophesying, but they won't hear you. Speak, but they won't listen. And you'll remember in the context of what we talked about last week, that most directly, who that applies to and who Jesus is referring to are the religious leaders the people who should have known the truth about the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet the very people who were determined to kill him for preaching that very message. So Jesus wants to make sure that his disciples understand that as they go throughout life, the purpose of this gospel, the purpose of Jesus, is not primarily to be concealed, though that fulfills the plan and purpose of God, but it is primarily to be revealed. And isn't that what we see when we read the book of Acts? What did the church do In response to the Great Commission, they continued to preach the word everywhere they went. Leaders and lay people, everyone, all Christians, they spread the word throughout the world all the way to the point that we are here today, where there are Christians all over the world, yet there is still much work to be done. And so Jesus teaches them a parable about revelation that teaches us what God will do. What will God do? God will make known this mystery. God is revealing the truth about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the reality is that you will never see anything rightly until you see it by the light of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a wonderful explanation of Jesus' point here. And it's a, a wonderful explanation within the context of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the ministry that Jesus gave to the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6 There Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Are you picking up on the similar language to what Jesus was saying? It's veiled, they can't see it, but it's veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, "Let light shine out of darkness," has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What does a lamp do? it shines light. Otherwise, it's pointless. What does Jesus Christ do? He shines light. Isn't this what he says? John chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul says that the ministry of the gospel is a ministry where we experience the the preaching of the gospel and we experience the reality that for some who don't believe, Satan has blinded their minds. They can't see it. They've got a veil over their eyes. And so no matter how much you get frustrated with them, they can't see it. They're caught in the strong man's house until the one greater than the strong man breaks in. And pulls them out. But he also explains that the ministry of the gospel will come as light to some people. And that God himself to those people, just as he once said in the very beginning, let light shine, will in that very dead heart say, let light shine, so that they see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus teaches them this parable about revelation that teaches us what God will do, it follows the ministry of the gospel. That what God is doing is a ministry of revelation. A revelation to, first of all, understand who Jesus is. And the reality is that it is only by the light of the revelation of Jesus Christ that you will be able to see anything else. If you do not see Jesus rightly, you will see nothing else rightly. Let's go back to Mark chapter 4. I skipped over pointing out to you because I wanted to save it to further emphasize the reality that this lamp that Jesus is talking about is Him and His message. I don't know of any English translations that take this this Greek uh, phrase literally. But verse 21 says, and he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? But actually the Greek makes the lamp the subject of the sentence. The way that this is translated, and it's, it's right because it becomes awkward if you translate it differently, but the way that this is translated makes you think that a human being is carrying a lamp into a room, right? Right? But the way that Jesus actually said it was more like, does the lamp, the lamp, there's a definite article in front of lamp, does the lamp come into a room in order to be put under a bed or under a basket? So the picture that Jesus gives is not a person holding a lamp, but a lamp entering into a room. Who is that lamp? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And this is what John emphasizes over and over again in his gospel, to remind us, until you see Jesus rightly, you will see nothing else rightly. And it's God's intention then that you would see rightly, which is why he is saying there is a, a revelation that's intended here. And then in verse 23, he gives us a call to hear. He repeats uh, the very similar phrase to what he has already said. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, which is a call to contemplate, to think about, to meditate on what he has just said. Other gospel writers use these similar phrases and often they use them to speak about your responsibility to make known the light of Jesus Christ. And certainly that's the reality here. But I think Mark wants to comfort us with the plan of God, that it's not God's intention ultimately to conceal what was then concealed, but it is God's plan ultimately to reveal to the whole world the real identity of Jesus Christ. So that one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Revelation 1.7, when he comes, every eye will see him. Even the eyes that don't want to see him. And so if you don't have the ears to hear that Jesus is speaking of, and if you can't see the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that he intends you to see him, you need to know first of all, that he is being tremendously patient with you. That even this moment right now is his grace to you. Grace that once again turns the light on for you. So will you respond to that light? Will you respond to that grace? As long as you have breath in your lungs, you can respond to this light. It is the purpose and the plan of God that you will respond to this light. You can do so willingly or you can be made to do so. But you will respond to this light. Just some friendly advice. Respond now. Respond now. Verse 23 actually is a seems like maybe a suggestion and it continues the theme of those who have ears to hear referring to the ones who who have the good soil the ones who the seed falls on the good soil so that they are the ones who hear this is the group that Jesus is teaching this is the group that Jesus refers to but it actually ends with a command let him hear is a command it's not a suggestion it gets decaffeinated a little bit in our translations, you know? It's like, it's as pointless as drinking decaf coffee. Just don't waste your time, man. Go for the good stuff. Let him hear is actually a command. So Jesus is telling his disciples, listen, hear me when I teach you this. And so first of all, we have a parable about Revelation that teaches us, what God will do. It gives us an encouragement that God's ultimate intention is not to conceal the gospel of the identity of Jesus Christ, but to reveal it. But it also gives us an instruction. How is that gospel revealed? By the preaching of the gospel. And how does God intend to make sure that this gospel is preached? You, that's how you. Romans ten thirteen to 15, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's good news. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach The good news. You see, Jesus wants to encourage his disciples that the seemingly small and insignificant start to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is only for a time. It needed to be concealed in those days because, from a human perspective, the leaders of Israel thought they needed to get rid of this nuisance named Jesus, but from a divine perspective. It was fully within the father's foreknown plan to crush his son so that his wounds would heal all those who believe in him. This gospel was once veiled, but it is being proclaimed and preached by the disciples of Jesus Christ even today all the way until that moment when every eye will see him. And so we have a parable that teaches us about what God will do. And then secondly, in verses 24 to 25, we have a parable about response that teaches us what we must do. A parable about response that teaches us what we must do, verses 24 and 25. And he said to them, you see the the signal again of a, a new but continuation of that teaching. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So first of all, in verse 24, we have a call to pay attention, or to consider, or to take it in. So in verse 23, we had the command to hear. But now, Jesus puts an exclamation point on that command, and he raises the bar, not just to hear, but pay attention to what you hear. The word actually literally means see what you hear. And it, of course, means to to take it in and to contemplate on it, to pay attention to it, to consider it in such a way that what you hear becomes what you see. This is what Psalm 1 speaks of, isn't it? Meditation on the word of God. Meditation on the teaching of Jesus. It's another indicator to us that the teaching of Jesus, indeed, the teaching of the Bible, is not meant to go in one ear or out the other, but it is meant to go in one ear and sink its way down into our hearts so that our lives are shaped and transformed by the teaching of the word of God. Why would that be the case? Because that's what a Christian does. Because that's what a disciple does, abides in the word of Jesus. If the word of God is as powerful as it says it is, how can we possibly abide in it without being changed by it? You can't. It's impossible to abide in the word of God and not be shaped and changed by it. Would that be an instantaneous process? Sometimes, but not usually. Hence the command, pay attention to what you hear. Have a plan to digest the teaching of the Bible. This is what Jesus is saying. He gives the command, he emphasizes the command, he tells you what you're supposed to do, pay attention to what you hear, and then he tells you why you need to do it. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. Jesus is speaking in a context where when they wanted to buy goods from the the market, most often, I mean, I wasn't around back then, but most often it wasn't prepackaged. So instead, what you would do was go to the market, and you'd say, I'll just use our measurement standards, for instance. You'd say, I'd like a cup of flour, please. And you would sometimes take your own cup so that the merchant couldn't rip you off, or you would rely on them to use their cup. They were supposed to be honest. And they would take a cup, and they would dip the cup into the flour, and they'd give you a cup of flour. With the measure that you measure out, it will be measured to you. Jesus is saying, In that very way, in the same way you go to the grocery store, sort of, in the same way you buy something that is in a measurement, that is the way in which it will be measured out back to you. So how does that relate? Hear, pay attention to what you hear, because the amount of attention you put into what you hear is exactly what you will get out of what you hear. And that's the principle. You get out of it what you put into it. Isn't that true for everything in life? You get out what you put in. You put little work into hearing the word of God, you'll get little out of it. You put much work into hearing the word of God, you obey the command of Jesus and you pay attention, then you'll get much out of it. You see where Jesus is putting the responsibility? On the disciples. He's saying, listen, this is is how it goes, fellas. You're gonna get out of my teaching whatever you put into it. But I want to point out something to you. Because the moment we hear that, or at least maybe it's just me, but the moment I hear it at least, I'm tempted to think, Well, then on the very same time, if you don't put anything in, then you're not going to get anything out. But that's, of course, true. But Jesus is not focused on the negative here, not yet. Whatever measure you put in, you put in a a tablespoon, you'll get out a tablespoon, you'll get something back. You put in a cup, you'll get a cup. You put in a gallon, you get a gallon. You make a strong effort to be a listener to the word of God, you take good notes, you make sure you get good sleep, all of those things, then you're going to get a lot out of it. You just drag your way through the teaching of the word of God, doing your best to stay awake, to get to whatever comes next, you might as well just stay home. But notice what else he says. And still more will be added to you. There's a warning implied here, but this is pure grace. So it turns out, while Jesus initially says, you put in a tablespoon, you get out a tablespoon, he later adds on to, but don't worry. I'll take good care of you. I'm going to give you even more than you put into it. Why would he do that? Because that's who he is, because he's full of grace. Because his love has no regulator. You know, they put governors on cars, unfortunately, so you can't go faster than a certain amount. There's no governor on God's love. If you are in God's love through faith in Christ, period, then there's no governor on God's love. He pours it out unceasingly, steadfastly, just like David told us at the very beginning of our service. Why? Not because we deserve it, but because he is in himself inherently good. Because he gives good gifts to his children. And so Jesus gives them An instruction that is filled with the abundance of God's grace. But he also gives them both an incentive and a warning in verse 25. He repeats himself, for to the one who has, more will be given. And I would remind you to think about what it is that the one has and what it is that the one does not have. What is it that Jesus said was hidden? The secret of the kingdom of God. So, when he says to the one who has, what he means is to the one who has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. The one whom God has graciously revealed himself to in Jesus. That's who he's talking about. To that one, that one who has been given a gift of God, more will be given. And from the one who has not, what do they have not? They don't have the secret of the kingdom of God. Maybe they sit in the pew every week, but they've not been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Maybe they listen to Jesus faithfully, consistently, but they just don't get it. To that one, even what he has will be taken away. You notice that Jesus first says he doesn't have anything from the one who has not from the one who doesn't have anything. And then he says, even what he has will be taken from him. That indicates to us that the message of the gospel is being shared with that one. It's just that God hasn't given them the secret of the kingdom of God yet. And so the seed is falling on some type of soil. The grace of God is being extended to them over and over again. They hear the call of Jesus, come, I will forgive you of all of your sins, come, I will make you clean, come, I will make you whiter than snow, I will remove your transgressions as far as the east is from the west, come, they hear it over and over again, but they never do. And so even that ability to hear the gospel will be taken away from them at some point. Perhaps in their death, or perhaps in a final judgment before they die. But it's a warning nonetheless. But you'll notice that who, is, who Jesus is teaching this lesson to is not outsiders, it's insiders. Certainly he would want them to examine themselves, as Paul would say, to see if they're in the faith, but Jesus knows their hearts. So this is more instructive to the disciples. It's an encouragement to them and it's an instruction on how to continue in their ministry and it's a reminder that there are four different types of soils. Sometimes people will respond to the gospel and it will be genuine and they will continually respond to the gospel and their life will bear fruit. Sometimes they will respond, not at all. Other times they will respond emotionally and be really excited and then it'll fizzle out. Other times they will respond to the gospel, but other things will become much more important to them so that even though they say, yes, I love Jesus, yes, I follow Jesus, even though they fill a pew and attend every event, the reality is their minds are always fixed on the next thing, everything else because they allow something else to choke out that seed. And so he's teaching his disciples the principle that what you get out of the teaching of God's word is what you put in. And then the principle that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The ones who have will be given more. The ones who don't have will have even what they have taken away from them. The parable here, these parables teach us that Jesus is worth listening to. And that that type of listening needs to be high quality listening. And so I think it's helpful then for us to think and to sort of close with two questions for reflection. Question number one, do you believe that Jesus is worth listening? listening to? Do you believe that Jesus is worth listening to? Do you believe that someone who is God in the flesh, someone who never sinned against God one time, someone who perfectly fulfilled the law of righteousness, the very law of God, And yet died as though he had broken every single law. Died at the hands of men, but died at the will of his father, so that he could satisfy the wrath of his father, so that in him you could have safe shelter from the wrath of God. And rose from the grave to validate who he is, to justify his people ascended back to the throne of the father where he now lives to make intercession for the saints and waits the day when his father said, okay, son, go get him. Do you believe that one is worth listening to? What else is greater than that? So question number one is, do you believe that Jesus is worth listening to? And question number two, how does the way that you listen to the Bible show this belief? how does the way that you listen to the Bible show this belief? You see what I'm saying there? Does the way that you conduct your private devotions say, I believe Jesus is worth listening to? Does the mindset that you take into Sunday school say, Jesus is worth it? Does the way that you listen to the preaching of God's word say, I'm here for Jesus and nothing's going to get in my way? If you put little effort in, you will get little in return. But if you put much effort in, you will get much in return. Jesus teaches us that there is a direct correlation between how much you value him and how much you listen to his word. And how much you listen to his word will have a direct implication, a direct impact on what you get in return, how much you know him. Put in little, you get little. Put in much, you'll find that there's a never-ending supply to the knowledge of God. Seeing Jesus Christ rightly is just the beginning of the glorious adventure of knowing God. And until you see Jesus Christ rightly, you will never see anything else rightly. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us to see you. Help us to see you now as we observe the meal that you gave to us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.